It's the Ruby on Rails podcast, January 2009, show number 91, speaking today with Jeremy McAnally. Alan Francis of Scotland on Rails asked me to mention that registration is now open. They've posted their full speaker list, and it looks like it will be quite a fun event. ScotlandOnRails.com for the information on that. So there are many members of the Rails community that seem like they are just such a fixture, so frequently active that I forget to even interview them on uh, on this show. And one of those people is Jeremy McAnally, been very active in the community for a couple of years, publisher, speaker, coder, works at ENTP, tons of projects, both small pro- uh, open source projects he's started and larger ones that have continued to have quite a lot of interest and uh so today talking to jeremy McAnally. now first how do you work on all these projects that you have i didn't write all of your uh your projects but something like you have 28 repositories on github you know do you ever sleep there are five of me actually um there are five no yeah um it's it's a competition if you look on rick's he's got like 55 or something so i only aspire to be the techno weenie one day one way is just have a lot of plugins and then, you know, it's just one method, but it counts as a whole new repository. Right, right. It, eventually you reach singularity where everything is really just one method on top of the 14,000 plugins that you've written. <laughs> now, I was talking to you on IRC and you said you really do get very little sleep. You just sleep like from 2 a.m. to 8 a.m. or something like that. Is that your consistent schedule? Yeah, pretty much. Um, I, I tend to go to sleep about one thirty, and then get up when my wife goes to work or a little bit thereafter at about uh, 7.30 at the earliest and like 8.30 or 9 at the latest. You also said you hate nothing on Twitter a little while ago. You said, I hate nothing more than wasting time. Do you, is Was that a commentary on your own time that you feel like you waste it too much or just in general, that's something that annoys you? In general, that's something that annoys me, but that particular tweet was uh, spawned by a screencast that I'd spent four hours working on, and then we realized that some of the the uh, names that I used in there could perhaps be taken as slight to some people, but we got that cleared up. But I was very irritated at the time that I didn't uh, think about that and thought I'd wasted a good three and a half, four, five hours on <laughs> cutting this whole thing together. That is hard, choosing names. Even I know, well, let's start out. Crowder, you wrote a new uh, router for <laughs> Rails, and apparently some people, that's a, a slight in German or something like that. Yeah, I, I don't have a clue. Uh, yeah, the next router project will not be uh, Crowder, as a matter of fact. <laughs> I'll make sure to uh, get the racist dictionary you know, to kind of look up every project name. You're planning another router that. project already. Yeah, I'm looking at uh, Josh had... Josh on the the core team had had done some work on a tree-based router, and I'm sort of looking at combining our two approaches, uh, but doing mine with a splay tree, which is something that someone pointed out to me that it auto-balances, and so you don't have the problems that you would have with a a normal bee tree. And hopefully that should fix the problems that I'm running into with the uh, regular expression-based method that I'm using now, which is... At the front of the list, or even in the middle, it's excellent performance, kicks the crap out of the current router. But at the end of the list, it's horrific performance on big route sets because it's matching all these regular expressions all the way down to the last one. 
And uh, I've sort of tinkered with, you know, bubbling the most popular routes to the top. But then when you restart your app, you're back at the same place. And so I think a tree of some sort is going to be the smartest way, but I haven't exactly figured out what I need to do yet. But I'm going to start tinkering with it in the next few weeks. Now, rolling back a little bit, what is it? Why did you do it? It's a couple hundred lines. It's supposedly 25% faster in one of your benchmarks than the current Rails router. What were you trying to accomplish with that? Just speed, maintainability, or other things? It, it was both. I mean, if if you go into the source and actually look at the current router, um, it's it's understandable if you read it a bunch of times and you really uh, know Ruby and understand the thought process. Uh, Jamis wrote, Jamis, I don't really know how to say his name, uh, wrote a set of posts on his blog, of, maybe it was a year or two ago, about how the, the router works. And uh, those were really illuminating when I was trying to figure it out, but it, it's just a mess. And I think it's a necessarily complex problem, so I don't really fault them for it. But um, I'm more of a you know the, do the simplest thing that could possibly work kind of person. And uh, I was tinkering just with building web frameworks last year, and you know, I built Vintage, and that one didn't have a router. And so I thought I'd step up to an MVC thing, and I realized how simple that you could build a router for an MVC framework. I mean, just a few hundred lines of code, and I had something that was working that was almost Rails API compatible. And I let that kind of bit rot for a while, but when we came back to doing a lot of refactoring on Rails, um, the router seemed like a prime spot to hit because it's one of the ugliest parts of the whole system. And um, so I took the code from my framework and t- um, updated it and sort of merged it in with the um, the Rails classes. And fortunately, I had followed the API almost exactly, so it wasn't too much hacking on it to get it working in there. Um, so I really just wanted to improve the readability of it. And the performance is a little bit of a concern. Um, people who have big route sets, recognition and generation are a big part of their uh, rendering and uh, action profiles. And so um, it would be really nice to get those down as low as humanly possible. I don't know if Crowder is going to do it exactly, but um, I'm going to hopefully figure out a solution soon that will do it pretty well. Now, it seems like that's something that's been tackled a couple times. Ulysses refactored re, uh, the original Rails router, and then it, I think Jameis did it again. And and then, you know, Merb has taken their own shot at it. With, it sounds like uh, Yehuda was going to try to put some of that into their rewrite of Rails 3. And then now you've given a shot. Did you go through and look at all the other routers to try to see what you thought they did wrong? Or did you tr- just try to start from a, a clean, clean stretch? Um, I... I kind of went through and saw how they did it, and it was mostly just learning how they handle all the segments. Um, their recognition algorithms, I mean, they're they're great. And like for big route sets, that's probably one of the more optimal algorithms that you could choose um, for bigger route sets. And I was hoping that with the regular expression improvements in 1.9 and it being a generally faster way to match things, that my initial instinct was to have one big regular expression for every route in a system, which would be theoretically really, really fast. Um, that didn't work out because apparently there is a limit on how big a regular expression could be. If you didn't know that um, most people don't have 65,000 characters in their regular expressions, so they never hit it, but you got up to that. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. With like, uh, I think it was something like 50 routes. <laughs> it hit, uh, it hit the limit pretty quick. So I had to go back and re-strategize a little bit, and that slowed it down a lot. But for smaller route sets, you know, it's, it's still a really good solution. Um, in Merb's case, you know, it's sort of the same thing, but their DSL and their backend is a lot more powerful. 
And that was something that I was really wanting to work toward if I could get the core router sort of in a position where it was fast and efficient as humanly possible. So I'm still working toward that goal, getting a core router that's really quick and really clean and easy to read, and then working up to the functionality of, of the MERB router. Um, I'm going to be kind of interested to see how they, they merge the two routers if they do. Um, there's going to be some shim code one way or the other because the DSLs just aren't compatible whatsoever. And uh, I know they're probably not interested in having two router DSLs, so it should be fun to watch that uh, play out a little bit. One more thing on that. Is there any speed benefit to having the router just go one way? For example, you know, right now a router has to parse the URL and it has to generate inside the app to, to create links in the HTML or wherever. You know, most of the time, I feel like I rarely ever change a route inside of my application. And if I do, I could just set up an, an alias. There's like the redirect routing plugin that's super speedy. And, you know, I could just set up a bunch of aliases for legacy or URLs. Would there be any benefit in in just trying to make the generation of URLs much more simpler? You know, just array.join or something and, and then try to optimize the actual parsing, which seems to be a, a big issue. Um, and Crowder, I actually separate the two into two totally different structures because I think that's really the only way you're going to get the best performance both ways. And it takes up a little more RAM, but it wasn't too much. Um, for the generation, I actually just had a, a set of hashes of hashes of hashes that would drill down from controller to action to request method or whatever and pick the route up and then interpolate the parameters back into it with a regular expression match and translation. And so it was actually fairly quick. Um, I don't know what the current router does if it tries to shoehorn that into the same sort of stuff that it uses for the recognition or not. But I know in, in my case, I separated those two out simply because it was going to be much faster to do it uh, in a totally separate manner. Now, one thing, uh, I think even after you, you release this router, you criticize the whole pissing match of counting lines of code and, and things like that. And yet... Crowder was advertised as being so small, and even you put the number of lines of code in there as a, as a feature. Isn't that a little inconsistent to criticize other people <laughs> for bragging about their their few lines of code and then then do it yourself? Yeah, I mean, it was it was a bit inconsistent. I'll admit that uh, it was mostly a readability issue. You know, they're doing the same thing, but one is something like twenty eight hundred lines of code, and the other one's two hundred. Um, I wasn't merely saying, you know, uh, more less lines of codes is, is better, uh, more so than, you know, it's more readable code. It's impossible to digest 3,000 lines of code easily. And so uh, that was really the point that I was trying to make uh, with that. Now, a lot of what you have worked on, uh, several projects that had to do with documentation. Talk about that a little bit. You did DCOV, uh, I think that was even a summer of of code project that you worked on or or was a administrator for for documentation coverage and then you tried to do a replacement for RDoc. what's the state of those projects and and the documentation in general for for a coder who wants to write documentation for their ruby app um decov i haven't touched in a while it still works i mean i still use it occasionally on things but um i just haven't added things to it like I'd like to. I'm kind of waiting to see where RDoc goes. If RDoc is going to be the standard in 1.9 and beyond, then I'll probably push DCOV, and I'll probably work on uh, DOCR, which is my RDoc replacement. 
a little bit more. Um, but there's also Yard, which um, I don't know if you're familiar with. Oh, but it's yeah, an alternative. Yard. Yeah, I'm waiting to see where that goes. Somebody's actually already made Yard Cub, which is decub for Yard. So that was kind of interesting to see that tool already out there before it's even uh, standard. But I'm pretty interested to see where it goes. Um, I don't know if it's really going to attract a big audience or not. I kind of hope it does because its internals are ridiculously clean compared to RDoc, um, at least in the sense that they transform the tree that RDoc gets back from code objects in such a way that it's easier to write tools like DCOV. Um, half the code in DCOV was just taking the junk that RDoc spits out and transforming it into something useful. Uh, the the Summer of Code project that I actually was a mentor for this year was called uh, DocBox, and Ian Ownby uh, was my student. And it's a wiki that lets you edit RDoc in the browser and will actually make documentation commits to a branch in a Git repository. And so um, you just go in there, and it, it looks sort of like you know an RDoc normal display, but you can click edit edit the RDoc source, it re-renders it, saves the latest to the database, and then in the background will actually commit those changes uh, back to the repository. So you could have people that don't necessarily want to get in and dig around in the code but still want to write uh, documentation, do it right there in their browser, and not have any fear of messing the code up or anything. Doesn't that seem a little, little backwards? Shouldn't you understand the code and then write the documentation instead of it being completely separated from it? But it's not so much a separation issue as um, some people have issues with uh, commit bit. And so it'd be really nice to have the ability for your users who know how to use it be able to edit your documentation seamlessly and commit straight to a branch um, while also getting the security that they're not going to stomp on your code. And GitHub alleviates that a little bit where you can pick and choose what you want to commit, but it's it's more or less a, a convenience factor. And being able to put out, like if Rails deployed a DocBox instance, for example, um, you know, with Doc Rails, it's not so much a problem, but there are probably a lot of people that know how to use Rails and would like to fix whatever little niggle in the documentation they identify, maybe something's wrong or a helper isn't really documented very well. Um, giving them the ability to go in there and edit the, co- the uh, documentation without fear of messing up the code or uh, messing up the markup at all would be really um, a big win for uh, larger projects, probably. And that could commit to a, a fork or a separate branch or something, and then that could still yeah. be reviewed before it's rolled into the main... Right, it commits to a, a docs branch just on the repository, and so you can go in and cherry-pick off that branch, whatever you want to commit, and uh, each edit is a commit on the branch, so um, you can pick and choose which changes you want to commit and then work from there. Now let's step back a little bit, a little uh, meta discussion here. Recently, we uh, saw the advent of the Rails activism team, which honestly, I'm surprised you weren't invited to be part of that. But for me, well, part of their their aim is to, is to improve documentation and help help people to learn Rails. To me, the you know, there's the give a man a fish versus teach him to fish, and I almost feel like a more important thing than having documentation is teaching people how to learn, how to go find out about things. Everyone who learned Rails in the first six months or whatever, even as there there was documentation, they had to get in there and either read the code or, or try out an app or, or whatever. People did learn it. 
what's your personal strategy when you go learning, go to learn some new technology? And do you think that is a, is a helpful thing for people to know and to, and how would you, this is a huge question, getting bigger all the time. How would you (laughs) teach people how to learn? Um, you know, I've been meaning to get some of these pragmatic thinking and learning books and things like that to sort of make sure that I have proper thinking on learning. But personally, I love to just get my hands dirty and get in there and do it because documentation is out of date as soon as you write it. But if you're in there working with code and tinkering out with it and figuring out how it works, then you're dealing with what you're going to be dealing with, uh, regardless of what the documentation says. You know, I see mailing list posts about people who have read, you know, four books on Rails, but they're still having problems. Um it's very revealing about how you should really go about learning, especially open source projects that are incredibly fast moving. Uh, you can never be secure that uh, documentation you have is going to be up to date. And I'm really glad they're, they're taking a focused approach on getting documentation up to date and consistent because that is a big problem now. Uh, people commit patches and don't update the documentation. It's not as bad now um, as it was, but it used to be, you know, you'd commit a patch and there would be vast differences in functionality and nobody really paid attention to the documentation. And when you have so many patches being thrown at you and it's such a big project, that's easy to do. Uh, so it's, it's going to be really nice, I think, to have a team that's concentrated on that. But I think when you actually go to learn a new technology, um, you should be thrown under the bus, basically. <laughs> I, I find within myself that, you know, I'm trying to learn iPhone and Cocoa right now. And I read through most of the the Hillgas book or Hillgas, however you say his last name, and uh, the A Press iPhone book, and I have the Prags iPhone book, and you know I read them on the plane, I read them just sitting around, and it makes sense. But until I get in there and I really start tinkering with it, actually without the book, usually, um, I just it doesn't really take for me. I felt like one thing is not only learning technically how it works, but what the kind of community conventions are. Like when I first learned Git, I was trying to, you know, push to ref slash head slash, you know, name a brand or whatever. And it worked. You know, I could have continued to do that. But then I consulted with an expert and he was like, oh, no, you just do this. You you track a branch. You just push back to the default or whatever. And and learning those kind of conventions seem, seem very important. Yeah, and Ruby doesn't really have a, any documentation on that, unfortunately. I mean, we have a lot of idioms that if you go and try to read code, it's not going to make a whole lot of sense when you don't really understand what's going on idiomatically. Um, when I came from, went from sort of C-sharp PHP to Python and then to Ruby, um, you know, I wrote C-sharp and Python basically for six months, and then I came to Ruby trying to read code, and I just it did not take with me for the first couple of weeks because I didn't really get the idioms that are going on and, you know, I named things wrong and Ruby didn't like that. You know, I'm used to capitalizing my method names and it flipped out when I did that. And so um, I think actually if we even just not necessarily documented so much as recorded what people are doing more often than we go and write these prescriptive manuals about Ruby this and Rails that and just sort of recorded what people are doing and made observations on it. That would be much more useful to the noob than a 500 page book that's just a general manual introduction. Context matchy stump. I think there's one other. You're pending. trying to uh, pending. Okay. You're trying to take down RSpec. Many people have tried. 
Why do you think you can do it? What are you trying to accomplish with that? Um, I'm not really trying to take down our spec. I mean, I just we I just wrote it to use mostly for us. Uh, we have or we had our spec test suites that were epic. I mean, you know, ten minute runs, things like that, and we would go in and optimize tests. And there was there were just a lot of them, and it's not necessarily our spec's fault. It's just after a while you get the bit rot and code gets more complex and it gets slower, and it it just happens. And uh, so I wrote context more. It, Mostly I wrote Matchy to go inside of something like Shoulda. Um, but then I, I looked at Shoulda and I saw that it was sort of suffering from the same thing where it was just getting kind of large and complex. And, you know, like I said earlier, I'm sort of the simplest thing that could possibly work kind of person. And so um, I went back to the drawing board and talked with um, Pratic from the Rails core team. And he said that he was thinking about tinkering with the same sort of idea. And so we sat down and kind of worked out some code. And I expanded that out into context, and I wrote Matchy the next day. And then I wrote Stump the next day, just sort of as an experiment in um, mocking and stubbing. I'm still not real satisfied with any of the mock stub libraries that I've used. Um, either the syntax is bad, or it's incredibly slow, or both. And, um, you know, I wrote these tools just as I want to use these, and I'm going to put these out there for other people, um, sort of a Rails-esque approach to open source, if you will. And uh, for some reason, I don't know why, it seems that people think that I'm attacking RSpec. And, and granted, I did have some, or I, I think I still do have some, rather uh, derisive language in the readme, which I actually need to take out. Uh, I'm not really trying to attack anybody. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm working with the Shoda guys to replace their context sort of stuff in Shoda with context, where Shoda will just be macros that sit on top of context so they can manage their source better and do what they do really awesome, which I really love a lot of their macros. Um, so I'm really excited about getting this working and then like context, do what it does best, which is adding structure to your test. And context, it gives you just kind of a, a block that you can wrap around something in, in order to group your specs and then mm -hmm. have a string to describe it. That's, is that m most of what it does or are there more things? Right. Um, that's all context does. And it, it builds them up. So, you know, you can have nested contexts um, inside of other contexts and it uh, chains their before and after callbacks, which are another part of context. And uh, it supports before all and after all, just like our spec. And um, it just let, it names your tests. So, for example, um, if you had a context inside of a context that was something like an orange when rolling down the hill and then a test that was, you know, should hit the ground it'll name your test, test underscore, you know, an orange rolling downhill should hit the ground. It'll put underscores where there would be spaces. Um, so you get basically readable test names. And I haven't gone back in and hacked the the runner, which you can do to actually put out your string test names and, and make it much nicer. I haven't gone back and done that yet, but I do need to. But even without that, the test names are readable and the stack traces trace back to where they're supposed to. So it just adds some nice grouping and structure to your tests. So would you say that the general ideas of RSpec are something that you're on board with in, with the general idea of, of having just natural strings to describe a spec using the should keyword, those kinds of things? Do you feel like those have, have made a difference or an important part of, uh, of doing test-driven development now? Yeah, I mean, definitely. And I, I have a sort of strange philosophy for testing. When I'm writing tests for existing code, 
I actually like to use the test unit syntax better because I already have code there and I'm asserting what it will be doing. And then when I'm actually going for new APIs, I prefer the behavior-driven development because in my mind, I'm saying this should do this when it's actually written. And I know it's kind of bizarre and arbitrary, but um, mentally for me, that actually helps me just to blow through tests depending on what I'm doing. And so being able to split that apart in context and matchy and just use test unit when I want and just, or just use, you know, assert or assert not and things like that um, when I want to, and then being able to use the matchers when I want to, um, it's kind of a, a big win for me. And then being able to sprinkle in uh, pending to add pending tests or specs whenever I need to is actually really nice too. Now, two projects I see missing in your repertoire are an, a continuous integration server and a messaging queue. I hope you're working on <laughs> several copies of each of those. <laughs> my uh, my coworker is actually working on integrity, and I've been hacking on a couple of things on that. So there's your continuous integration server. Okay. Uh, yeah, the messaging queue, I'll get on that. Um, i got to find one to copy first and then uh, hack the uh, the code down to about 50 lines and uh, then release it. Now, I'm always interested when I talk to, to programmers uh, about just your gen- – well, speaking of a queue, your general life queue. I know Alex of Twitter wrote a while ago, and he said, here I have all these queues. I have my email inbox. I have my uh, tickets, you know, my bug tracking tickets. I have individual features that I want to add to new apps. I have all these different projects. How do, do you have any tips for how you just personally organize what you're going to do right now, what you're going to work on? There's, you know, you've got so many projects. How do you decide which one to work on at which time and, and fitting out in all the other things that you really do need to do by some deadline? I actually have a big paper calendar that I bought in big markers. And at the beginning of every, at, I'll just tell you my system. Old school. Um, at the top, yeah. Um, yeah, technological uh, technological solutions did not work for me. Um, so I went old school, got a big paper calendar, some big markers. At the top of every day, I write uh, FEST. It's uh, food, exercise, shower, and then other things. And um, I just tick those off when I do them in the morning, And which uh, exercise has not been ticked off ever as far as I can remember. And, uh, but you put it on there every day. Yes, yeah, so I put it on there to uh, to remind myself. And uh, every like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I put a B on there for blog, which I have not kept up with, but I need to get back on that. I did for a while, but uh, I haven't lately. And uh, then below that, you know, you have the lines for things that you need to do that day. And whatever one-off tasks I need to do that day, I'll write on there, you know, go pay bills or whatever. And if I have a, an overarching project for that week, for example, um, I'm starting to collect materials for the next Rubyist, and so... Um, you know, I'll square off a week with a, a different colored marker and write the Rubyist really big in the corner. So I know, you know, those days or that week or whatever, um, I'm going to be working on that. And if I accomplish everything that I need to get done that day, I mark the day off with a green X. And if I don't, I mark it off with a red X. And I, at a glance, after a month, I can see my performance arc. You know, um, I find, you know, in the second week or whatever, I, I get where I don't really get things done, and I need to look at why that is. And um, just what, for whatever reason, you know, on Wednesdays I find I don't get things done. That's because I always go out to a later lunch and so I don't have as many hours. And so I kind of adjust my, my routine based on that. 
That's smart. It seems like we, as programmers, we often look forward to the future, new hardware, new software, but kind of reviewing what did I really do, what worked in the past, how can I change my my daily pattern to to work with that better? Yeah, it's kind of interesting, and I I think we're just creatures of habit, and if we don't step back and take it, we have our heads down so far in work and um, hobbies and stuff like that, we're very intense people, we programmers, you know. Um, that if we don't take a step back and and look at what we're we've been doing and and how it could be better, then we'll never uh, be as efficient as we'd like to be. Plus, you can't you know TDD life, so we kind of have to do uh, retrospectives if we're gonna ever get more efficient. And I guess that's what, almost what you expressed right here. You have some goals at the beginning of the day, and then at the end you evaluate as to whether that happened or not. And then you have a big, you're, it's almost a, a big calendar about nothing where you can look through and see all right. the, the green X's and if you had a streak. Yeah, I've been outsourcing the uh, the open source contributions. Those are starting to clog up my calendar a little bit. So I put those on calendaraboutnothing.com and then have all of this on on paper. So fine, we won't be able to get to all of the things that you uh, worked on or do, but Rubyist Meg, you launched that a couple months ago, got a couple people interviewed, articles, that kind of thing. You're doing it again. How does, it, how does that turn out? Has it been as popular as you had hoped it to be? Um, yeah, I mean, you kind of have to be realistic about a Ruby magazine. It's not going to be ridiculously popular, especially if it's not on store shelves. And uh, I've actually been really surprised. The PDF copies have blown the print copies out of the water, which I did not expect whatsoever. Um, I've been really pleased with the willingness of people to contribute. Um, I already have twice as many pieces as I had last time, and most of them are longer. And so we should see a lot more pages this time than we saw last time. Last time was sort of an intro issue. Um, This is the direction we're going. This is what we want to be doing. And it wasn't nearly as long as I wanted it to be. And I think a lot of people caught on to that, and they were kind of unhappy about... um, being so short with ads, but at the same time, you know, I had to pay for promotional copies and I put ads in place, um, all of which were completely useless. So, you know, it's a learning experience. (laughs) Um, you know, you try something that doesn't work, you go back and retry it. So, um, this is one of those things where, you know, I'm having to learn how to promote a print publication, which is something I've never done before. Uh, buying promo copies and offering them to people was, was great. But then I realized that I, I, you know, they've got five for their office. So that's five people that didn't buy that issue, but hopefully they'll buy the next one. We'll see how that plays out. And I still have over half the box in my room. So uh, hopefully those will <laughs> be going somewhere. Um, just in case you were wondering, uh, Google ads are useless for this sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't get, gotten much uh, mileage out of Google Google Ads either. It's nice to have something. Well, I mean, I'm glad to hear the PDF sales have gone well. It's nice to get something physical, you know, show up in the mail as well and read through that. I I really thought you did a good job. It was not well laid out. I guess Peter Cooper was going to start a similar project, but he thought it, it looked good, so good he just abandoned his other similar magazine project that he was going to do. Yeah, I was really surprised by that. I, I had he'd emailed me about it, but I didn't really um, get the vision for what he was doing. And I guess it was sort of close to what I was doing, so that that's kind of cool. Um, I was kind of interested to see what he came up with, but um, I'm hoping I can he can finagle out enough time. He's a pretty busy guy to sort of give me some at least some pointers as to where he was going, and so I can kind of follow in his path because I'm really interested to uh, hear where he was going with that. 
now you've invested a lot of time and money. Are you trying to make this uh, more of a part of your regular employment or is it just kind of a, a side project to, to keep it self-sustaining? Um, I broke about even last time and that was out of graciousness of some people. Um, I'm, I don't think this is going to be anything that I can be employed with unless it gets picked up by some sort of larger media entity. Uh, hint, hint. Um, <laughs> I would, you know, it'd be really cool to see O'Reilly publish this or something alongside with their make or whatever. Um, I don't know if I sincerely doubt that'll ever happen, but, um, you know, if there is an end game for this sort of thing, if I'm really wanting to, to see it get bigger, that's going to have to be what happens. I don't have the time or, or resources to really invest in it and set up my own print and distribution deals and things like that. So for now, it's a side project. And if something else pops up, we'll see. Well, thanks for the conversation. What's happening coming up? Uh, I think it looks like you're speaking at a couple different conferences. You're still working at ENTP. What's happening with that? Yeah, just working at ENTP, uh, trying to hire people into my Huntsville, Alabama office. I swear it is not like deliverance. Um, we have the biggest concentration of PhDs anywhere in, in the whole United States. So um, a lot of smart people with a lot of rednecks mixed in. It's kind of interesting. So if you want to work uh, in a place with smart rednecks, um, this would be it. And uh, yeah, I was going to speak at Scotland on rails. I don't think that's going to happen. I just cannot get the funds together to, to fly over and get a hotel and all that. So fortunately I think I'm going to have to miss that one, but I am speaking at mountain West uh, a week or two before Scotland on rails and uh, pretty excited about that going to be delivering a talk on uh, DSLs and kind of when and when you should not build them and sort of drive really deep. It's sort of old hat to talk about DSLs now. So hopefully I can get into some more uh, philosophical and then straight into some more advanced content and sort of skip over the stuff that's available on everyone and their brother's blog. Sponsored as always by peep code screencasts, new screencast now on the Emacs text editor with Phil Hagelberg and a new one on the Hamel and SAS templating languages. Check it out at peepcode.com. If you haven't already, check out the Rails Envy podcast. I co-hosted it with Jason a week ago and had a fun time. Regular weekly news in the Ruby on Rails community, railsenvy.com.